0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: So th- this case uh, is really historic because it held really for the first time that the writ of habeas corpus applies outside the 50 states to non-citizens, interestingly, non-citizens held outside the United States uh, at least have a right to get a, rid of habeas corpus, at least as far as Guantanamo goes. But I do think if we're looking for things that I'm very worried about going forward, it would be the question of Congress in some way, even under the Democrats, and I don't put anything past the Democrats on this issue, uh, setting up a preventive detention scheme. And that would be bad. Uh, but I, I fear greatly that as we keep striking blows against the administration and their this concurrent Guantanamo very severe preventive detention scheme, uh, that the Democrats will say, well, at least let's legalize preventive detention, and it's better than having it, you know, in this broad Guantanamo type way. And I consider that a great danger.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michael Ratner. Today's show, The Writ of Habeas Corpus, The Right to Challenge Detention. Michael Ratner is president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, a nonprofit human rights litigation organization in New York City. He has led the Center in its aggressive legal fight against the post 9 11 violations of civil liberties by the Bush administration. He was part of a small group of lawyers that brought the first habeas case in federal court on behalf of detainees held at Guantanamo. Two years later, in Razuel v. Bush, the United States Supreme Court ruled that the center's cases could go forward under the federal habeas statute, but Congress attempted to overturn this decision with a series of laws, the Detainee Treatment Act in 2005 and the Military Commissions Act in 2006, that amended the federal statute to eliminate habeas jurisdiction for any enemy combatant held in U.S. custody. On June 12, 2008, the United States Supreme Court, in an historic decision, Boumediene v. Bush, the court held that the center's clients detained at Guantanamo have a constitutional right to file petitions for habeas corpus in U.S. federal court. Challenging the lawfulness of their detention, Michael Ratner, welcome.
1: Nice to be here, Bonnie.
0: Michael, the June 12, thousand and eight decision by a five to four majority of the Supreme Court in the case Boumediene versus Bush, uh, brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights, has been hailed as an historic defense of the rule of law and the Constitution. Most importantly a majority of the court found that the right of habeas corpus is a constitutional right which cannot be abrogated by the executive and legislative branches of government. Could you explain what the right of habeas corpus is and what the issues in this case were?
1: Well, the habeas corpus right is really the right of any person who's been imprisoned or detained by the government, by the king, by the president, to go into a court and force the government or whomever is holding him, to or her, to justify their detention both legally and factually. And it goes all the way back to 1215 in the Magna Carta. It's what they call a common law right, in fact. It's in the Magna Carta, but it also is a right that is understood to be the difference between a police state and a state that is under the authority of law. Because in a police state, you can just be arrested, thrown in a prison, or detained, and you never get to go into a court. You never get a lawyer. So this right is really you know it's 8 or 900 years old or maybe more it was embodied in our constitution in a uh, in, in a sort of uh, in an interesting way in in a, in a clause that said the right of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended except in time of rebellion or invasion of course neither of those circumstances is present here and it was considered so important that that they didn't even have to spell out the right they just they just knew that you had this right to go to court if you were arrested and what's happened subsequently, of course, is the right has been extended over our American history to the most to people in the United States, within the 50 states. But the question that was raised by the post-9-11 detention program of, of President Bush and company was whether people, the first blush, people at Guantanamo, which is under the complete jurisdiction and control of the United States, according to lease, whether the writ of habeas corpus applied to them or whether the president could simply pick up people anywhere in the world, in this case particularly non-citizens, anywhere in the world, take them to this military base at Guantanamo, deny them lawyers, deny them the writ of habeas corpus, deny them the right to go to court, and hold them for any reason he wanted at all. So so this case uh, is really historic because it held really for the first time that the writ of habeas corpus applies outside the 50 states to non-citizens, interestingly. Non-citizens held outside the United States uh, at least have a right to get a writ of habeas corpus, at least as far as Guantanamo goes. We can talk about later in the program extensions to other places, other prisons, Bagram, et cetera. But it's, a, it's really historic because it was, again, of course, a five-to-four decision with what I call the four... Um, antediluvians, or people who must have uh, gotten their law learning before the flood, Uh, in the dissent, that's Scalia, Thomas, Alito, and Roberts, Kennedy writing the majority opinion uh, for the five who normally, uh, or at least on the the moderate to liberal side of the court. And so it was a, a major, major ruling. And to think of the consequences had it gone the other way, that you could simply pick people up anywhere in the world and hold them in an offshore prison forever, uh, is really frightening, and it's frightening that we only won one by one vote.
0: In our show a year ago, when discussing the constitutionality of habeas corpus and the fact that the Supreme Court had yet to rule on that issue, you said, quote, we're going to win again in the Supreme Court. It'll be a five to four decision, but we're going to win and now you 've won this historic decision. This must be a very proud day for you.
1: The question in that quote Bonnie, is was i was I just optimistic or was I actually sure it was just bravado? I actually thought we had a very good chance of winning I have to say by the same five and that 's what that 's what we uh, what we what we won by and um, you know it is a uh, as i said it 's a very significant decision. We still have two hundred and seventy people at Guantanamo. Will now be able to go into the federal district court in Washington, and force the government to justify their detentions. It still may take time, and I think it's important to understand where this decision came from. This is the third victory uh, that the Center and our uh, co counsel uh, have had in in the Guantanamo cases in the Supreme Court. The first case we won was called Razul in two thousand and four, and that did say six to three because Justice O'Connor was still on the court that did say that the people at Guantanamo had a right to a writ of habeas corpus, or a right to go to court and test their detention. But it did it on the basis of the statute, the habeas statute, which was a statute passed by Congress and not on the Constitution. So, of course, then what happened after we won that, uh, the good thing that happened is we got counsel and lawyers to Guantanamo and stopped the most overt torture. The bad part that happened is Congress, the Republican Congress, then overrode the statute that it had passed, you know, 100 years before, 200 years before, and said, we're, we're, we're eliminating the writ of habeas corpus from people at Guantanamo. The case then went to the Supreme Court for the second time. The Supreme Court slapped Congress down again and said, whatever you tried to do here, you didn't do it, and they still have a statutory right uh, to go to court and test their detention, writ of habeas corpus. The Congress then, for the second time, overrode the Supreme Court again and said, Look at the Supreme Court. We meant to take it away. We're taking it away every which way. Don't tell us we didn't take it away. We took away the writ of habeas corpus. And therefore, because they did it in a way that was at least, didn't leave any ambiguity about it, the Supreme Court was forced to decide the underlying constitutional issue and whether the Constitution and its writ of habeas corpus protections applied to Guantanamo. And then, of course, are going to be the subsidiary questions of what other constitutional rights might also apply to Guantanamo.
0: Yes, we went over at that time the detainee Treatment Act of two thousand and five and the Military Commissions Act of two thousand and six. So this has been a, a long running battle for you and hundreds of attorneys, I guess who have been involved now this uh, historic decision on June twelfth upholding the constitutionality of the right of uh, the writ of habeas corpus. This was so significant. Did you think that it didn't get enough play in the press? I mean it was covered, of course, but it was uh it seemed to me that people sort of uh brushed by it a little bit.
1: You know, I think that's right. I mean I think that to be honest, a lot of people in this country and the news media, major news media in particular don't cover Guantanamo very much. And in fact I've heard you no know, major news media say that, well, we're not going to cover that. We think people are, get bored with it, and they turn the channel to the station. And so I think they don't cover it, and it's happening outside the country. It's mostly happening to non-citizens who are Muslim. I think that's probably a consideration. It did have a short flurry of, of coverage, and, of course, um, it was viciously attacked by, by, by McCain, uh, by Bush... Uh, by others, in fact, one of the more amazing attacks to me was Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich, who was the former Speaker of the House, uh, said that well, this is the worst decision since Brown v. Board of, and uh, not since Brown. This is the worst decision uh, since uh, since the um, what was the? I'm trying to think of the case, but I just can't think of it. Okay, anyway, but the, the decision was really viciously attacked. Uh, In fact, Giuliani and McCain essentially said that Obama, who actually endorsed the decision and said he thought people should get rid of habeas corpus, they said for Obama it was September 10th, as if September 11th never happened. And so they were trying already to weaken the Democrats with regard to the, uh, you know, the weakness on national security and defense. Uh, But I do agree with you. I think it did not get the kind of prominence it should have. It is a major decision. I do want to say a word. You know, it is six and a half years now since we filed our first case. It'll It'll be February 2002 when we filed. It'll be seven years, you know, coming up in a half a year or so. And it has taken a very long time to win this victory. And we still have a long way ahead, unfortunately, and we can talk about what needs to be done. Um, And a a lot of suffering went on during that period. We've gotten a lot of people out due to pressure and European countries taking people or, you know, Afghanistan insisting on getting some of its citizens back. Uh, But in fact, it's six and a half years, and we're just now at the beginning of trying to get writs of habeas corpus uh, that might be actually heard in the district court.
0: Yes, you know, you also said in our show a year ago on military commissions when we discussed this uh, upcoming uh, decision, you said at that time, it's shocking that a fundamental right has been at stake in this country and that a building block to a police state hangs on one vote. One judge is standing between what is left of democracy and what is essentially a fascist state. One principle stands right between democracy and a police state. And in fact, this Supreme Court decision, as we've said, is it was 5 to 4.
1: Yes, 5 to 4 again. Again, we're we're really holding to a key principle and when I it's not just rhetoric to talk about this as a key principle because it's gone it's gone back in history the idea that, you know, that that the president can grab you by the scruff of the neck anywhere in the world and toss you into a prison and not give you a right to go to court and just bury you in a prison essentially. Uh is really what differentiates uh, a police state from a democracy or a police state from a country that's accountable to its citizens. And the fact that we're holding it by one vote uh, is very, very is very, very uh, scary to me. And the fact that the four people on the other side uh, are really, uh, if you look at even the other decisions that have come down in the last few days from the Supreme Court, uh, the, uh, the one that Kennedy also wrote, who wrote the opinion in, in Bumetian, who wrote the opinion in our case, he also wrote the decision saying you can't use the death penalty against people who've been convicted of of raping children. But again, you had the four uh, really bad justices in the dissent on there: Alito, uh, Roberts, uh, Thomas, and Scalia. So you can just see where this country could go if we even lose one of those five in the majority. And those five in the majority are not court I was raised with, you know, I was raised with the Earl Warren court in the 60s and the 70s, uh, which was a very, very liberal court. This court, at best, you could say the five are moderate. And it, it's a demonstration, really, of how of how nervous and, and frightened these five are, uh, that, that even moderates would have to slap down the president, not once, not twice, but three times on the issue of habeas corpus. They understood its seriousness in a way that Obviously, the other four are just willing to make light of and, uh, and actually uh, and actually claim somehow that more Americans are going to die because of this decision.
0: I'm speaking with attorney and president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, Michael Ratner. Today's show, The Writ of Habeas Corpus, The Right to Challenge Detention. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. As you've pointed out, the Supreme Court decided twice before this latest uh, decision that these detainees should have the right of habeas corpus in the first two instances by statute. But what's significant is that the Congress, it's not just the uh, executive branch, but the Congress itself, our elected officials, went back and uh, passed laws that removed the statute that gave them the right of habeas corpus. That is really, really disturbing. Now, doesn't this latest decision also have important implications for the separation of powers of the three branches of government?
1: You know, Bonnie, I'm really glad you brought up that point, because we all blame President Bush for all of our, all of our woes here, or many people do. And yet, as, as you pointed out, that twice we won in the Supreme Court and twice... At that point, Republican-dominated Congresses uh, overrode those Supreme Court decisions, those decisions, but they actually had a lot of help from Democrats, unfortunately. Not all the Democrats. There were some that held out and said, you have to give habeas, but they, they basically couldn't have done it if the Democrats had really decided to stop it. The Democrats had certainly... The 40 votes in in the Senate to filibuster it if they wanted. Uh, they had the equivalent filibuster in the House, but they didn't do it, and we got we therefore had to have the Supreme Court do a do a constitutional decision. And even in the, this interim period now, uh, when the Democrats have taken control of the Senate and the House, we we've, we've been we lobbied, we went down there, they promised us they would restore habeas, and they never did. They never actually pushed that legislation to override the Military Commission Act and the Detainee Treatment Act. Never did it. Uh, Never, you know, they could have done it a million ways. They could have cut the money off for Guantanamo if people didn't get habeas. Could have done everything. So didn't do it. So in the end, what we had was, you're right, we had what they call the political branches. The president and and our congressional branches say one thing, and a court come and say another. And the court basically did take this as a separation of powers issue. Uh, the court felt that what Congress and the president together had done was actually strip the court of its jurisdiction to hear habeas corpus cases. Now, that's very serious. It's, it's two branches, uh, the, the executive and the legislature, stripping a court of its right to hear habeas corpus cases. Because the way they denied habeas corpus to Guantanamo is they say no court shall have jurisdiction of the right to hear any habeas corpus proceeding uh, from anyone outside the United States, essentially anyone in Guantanamo. And so the court was quite upset at this and looked at it as a separation of powers case, where you have your three branches, they're supposed to balance each other in some way or another when one goes uh, Get excessive in terms of its use of power, and yet what you had here was two of the branches: the legislature and the executive, stripping the judiciary of its jurisdiction, and they weren 't going to put up with it and so they held it for only the third time in American history I should say that they ever held a jurisdiction stripping statute unconstitutional
0: now. Eric Friedman of uh, Hofstra University Law School has called the decision, this latest decision, a structural reaffirmation of what the rule of law means. How would you interpret that?
1: Well, that's what what, what he's saying is what we're really discussing, is that you let the two branches that are the political branches, the legislative and the executive... Uh, really try try through this jurisdiction stripping provision, getting rid of the habeas corpus, uh, getting rid of a protections of the habeas corpus as well as the right of the courts to determine who should be held and who shouldn't at least well, who the government uh, whether the government has sufficient evidence those branches were beginning to structurally essentially eliminate the third branch, the judiciary and the rule of law. so what Eric's really saying there, and what I was saying previously is that is that this is a really a restoration in some way of the structure of government of our three branches, and it's, a, it's therefore a very, very significant decision. But as uh, as we you and I have said, five to four it doesn't it gives me some comfort, but but I'll tell you it doesn't give me a lot of comfort.
0: How many outstanding Guantanamo habeas cases are there of detainees challenging their indefinite detention without charges?
1: We have 270 people left at Guantanamo. Uh, habeas corpus petitions have been filed in the District of Columbia, uh, for almost all of them, certainly over two hundred and two hundred twenty and 220, and we'll probably get the rest filed in the next short order. And some 500 attorneys are working with the Center for Constitutional Rights on these cases. So those are all pending in the District of Columbia. Now, listeners ought to separate. Of those 270, 15 are actually going through, where the government plans to put them through, a separate procedure called military commissions, which are these sort of rump criminal trials, if you want to even grace them with the word criminal trial, um, in which they, they, they will claim that these people have committed war crimes and will try them with lawyers in some kind of rump hearing where they allow coerced evidence and torture evidence at Guantanamo. Uh, but those people may still be able to bring habeas corpus petitions. The question is whether they'll be able to bring them before their trials are completed or not. My overall view of this whole situation is that those habeas proceedings for all 270 are going to proceed in the district court. As the government gets pushed to its proof, it's going to have some real problems proving, uh, proving that uh, people have to remain in Guantanamo. It doesn't have a lot of evidence. The evidence it has is, is mostly from coercion. and So I, I anticipate... A number of people being at least, if not released, at least found not to uh, belong in Guantanamo and figuring out what to do with them. But I also anticipate that this is going to be a problem for whoever the next president is.
0: Right. And I was going to ask you what impact the decision on habeas, uh, uh, what impact is that going to have on the military commission's cases? Um, I guess there's 1920 people charged. Are these parallel proceedings, uh, they're going to take place?
1: Well, the argument that would be made of those criminal proceedings that are going on or the military commissions is that those people actually have a way to test their detention because they're going through actually a a criminal proceeding, a military commission where they have a lawyer and can cross-examine people, et cetera. Uh, The argument on the other side by the the lawyers for them as well as myself and the center who at one time had a military commission case is that those military commissions are so illegal and unconstitutional uh, because they allow evidence from torture, they allow secret evidence, uh, they're not real juries, they're juries that are appointed by the military and they're military officials. Uh, the charges aren't really are made up by the president essentially, and that those people ought to be tried in front of regular criminal courts uh, that our argument would be that those people all can file habeas corpus petitions that should be heard because they shouldn't have to go through an unconstitutional process of a trial before they get a chance to prove uh, that they're wrongfully held. My view is the first trial is supposed to start of those military commissions Uh, in July, I think July 21, it's Hamden who supposedly was the, the driver or bodyguard at some point for bin Laden. Already once his trial has been held unconstitutional, they're trying again to figure it out. Uh, But I still don't anticipate uh, that any of these trials will ever make it to the end, and if they do, will be upheld on any kind of appeal. This is a really uh, rump kangaroo court system uh, that is is more than an embarrassment. It's just an outrage to to any any idea of, uh, of justice.
0: Right. Now, the Hamden case went to the Supreme Court, And uh, that was all about these, wasn't it, about the military tribunals being a parallel legal system, and that you can't set up special trials like this?
1: Well, that's right. The first Hamden case, which was decided in 2005, held illegal these special trials. But they said one of the reasons they're holding it illegal is because Congress hadn't approved of these special trials. Uh, they didn't give all of the details, but that's one of the reasons. The other reason was that they didn't comport with fundamental due process, the right to cross-examine, the right to see the evidence, et cetera. So the question now is, now that Congress has essentially set forth the procedures for these military commissions or special trials, is will the Supreme Court uphold them in that in that context? My view is the Supreme Court will not uphold them, ultimately, but it'll be a slim margin again, um, because not because Congress hasn't approved them, because now, sad to say, the Republican Congress did approve them, sadly with a lot of Democrats going along, uh, but because they have these fundamental constitutional flaws, the main one being, to me, the fact that you can use what, what the statute terms is evidence from coercion. Um, they don't say you could use evidence from torture, but under this administration's definition of torture, um, nothing constitutes torture, it all just constitutes, I shouldn't say just, but constitutes coercion, and therefore all this evidence is going to come in that's really forced evidence, and I don't think there's any way that these uh, tribunals will be upheld with that.
0: Right, and these military tribunals, this is where they're going to try uh, a Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and some of these very... Uh, highly publicized accused uh, terrorists are going to be put on trial. How does the habeas decision, this latest uh, habeas uh, decision from the Supreme Court, how does this decision affect the torture of these people? Now, I understand the men that have been held in Guantanamo, they've been held in solitary confinement and are losing their minds.
1: Well, we have a problem. You know, a lot of these people have been held in solitary for very long periods of time. They're having trouble participating in their defense, trouble relating to their lawyers. Uh, It's solitary. It was all the punishment they had over time. Uh, Some of these people have been waterboarded as as has come out. Uh, They've been... One of them, I just saw something, was tortured over different various interrogation techniques, torture, cruel treatment, a hundred times over a two-week period. Uh, So uh, this decision will, of course... Um, give them the right to try and challenge uh, as I said, the military commissions, but the, the the torture part of it should make these trials almost impossible to, to carry on um, just because of the lack of evidence that 's real as well as the condition of the defendants. But you know so far, on most cases in which the mental health of the defendant has come before the courts in these kind of cases, uh, the courts have unfortunately allowed those trials to proceed. But I think these military commissions, as I said, uh, are so beyond uh, any sense of justice uh, that I I don't believe that anybody will actually be convicted and sent to jail on the basis of a conviction before a military commission.
0: I'm speaking with attorney and president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, Michael Ratner. Today's show, The Writ of Habeas Corpus, The Right to Challenge Detention. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, the Bush administration's spokespersons are saying that even after this habeas decision, that detainees that are deemed dangerous won't be released under any circumstances, even though there is not sufficient evidence to hold them, and a habeas corpus hearing finds them not subject to further detention. You and I spoke in uh, our show last year about something that that is called preventive detention. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, I think what you're referring to is initially what the Bush administration said was even people tried before military commissions and found uh, not guilty uh, would still be held or could be held as dangerous, uh, et cetera. And what what winning this case, the Bomedian case, did in June would say that, well, the Bush administration isn't going to be able to really stick with that, because those people and any others at Guantanamo will be able to go before a court and say, government, put forth your reason for holding me as a so-called, you know, dangerous person, etc., and the government will have to articulate real evidence and have to be a hearing. So there will have to be a court deciding that issue uh, with regard to that. At the same time, what I've I've just said... uh, really amounts to a preventive detention scheme, because since when can you hold people just because they're dangerous and not accuse them of a crime? Normally in our criminal law system, if a person is accused of a crime, they can be held with very high bail or on occasion denied bail on the grounds that they're a danger to the community if they're released. But they've at least been charged with the crime, and then the trial has to start relatively quickly. They can't just be held forever because they're a danger to the community and never tried. But what what preventive detention really is, and what we've, what we've really seen here at Guantanamo for six and a half years now, is a massive scheme of preventive detention. That's what we have. We have President picking up people all over the world, non-citizens in this case, but occasionally they do citizens. Uh, a couple of them, in the United States, Padilla, and one other, I think, Hamdi. But they pick up non-citizens everywhere in the world. They take them to Guantanamo. They don't charge them with the crime, and they hold them indefinitely, forever, essentially, without ever charging them with the crime. That's a preventive detention scheme. And the question that really, if you look at it, if we if we get those people into a court. Is the court going to be deciding simply, well, there's enough evidence to hold them under some sort of danger to the community, dangerousness test, and therefore really allow them to be held in preventive detention, or is the court going to insist on, as it should, that you can't simply do that. You have to charge people with a crime and bring them to trial. You can't simply have some kind of huge holding camp and hold, even if it goes to a court, and say preventive detention but i do think if we're looking for things that i'm very worried about going forward it would be the question of congress in some way even under the democrats and i don't put anything past the democrats on this issue uh... setting up a preventive detention scheme and that would be bad you know there is one it's a it's a relatively short one compared to guantanamo there is one in britain right now it was twenty eight days It's just been extended to forty two days which sounds remarkable. That means before you actually have to charge or release somebody, you can hold them for 42 days in a prison. Uh, it seems really outrageous to me, unnecessary, exaggerated, unconstitutional. Uh, but I, I fear greatly that as we keep striking blows against the administration and their sort of, what you call this, uh, this concurrent Guantanamo very severe preventive detention scheme uh, that the Democrats will say, well, at least let's legalize preventive detention, and it's better than having it, you know, in this broad Guantanamo-type way. And I consider that a great danger. Um, I would be appalled to see a preventive detention scheme in this country. Uh, it's just such an exaggeration of what's necessary. Had they treated 9-11, the terrorist attacks, as criminal acts and arrested uh, and tried the people who were involved in them, uh, we would have been much better off. Uh, than we were with this essentially massive preventive detention scheme.
0: So the massive preventive detention scheme that's been going on, they have just been doing it. They don't have a statute yet that legalizes it.
1: That's correct. Um, Even though Congress has weighed in here about the habeas issue, et cetera, and some definitions of enemy combatant, they have not actually set up a preventive detention scheme when you say just doing it, it's completely correct. The president, uh, and I remember uh, when this happened, he issued a military order on November 13th, 2001, in which he said he, as commander-in-chief uh, of the military, as commander-in-chief under our Constitution, he had the right to pick up and detain indefinitely any alleged terrorist anywhere in the world. And that's What I sometimes refer to as a coup d'etat in America, but what it really is, it's the setting up of a massive preventive detention scheme by the president based on what he claims is his military authority as commander in chief. And that's why initially he called that military order number one. He now, I think, refers to it, or it's referred to as executive order number one. Uh, But really it was the president's takeover of uh, the detention uh, outside the court uh, of detentions and being able to detain anyone he
0: wanted. Right, and right along with that was the claim, and what they did is that they said that the executive could uh, deem anybody that he so chose an enemy combatant and that there was no definition of such a thing.
1: Right, they worked together. The way the way the president did prevent a detention, he initially had this order that said he could pick up any alleged terrorist and tell the uh, military to do it and they could be held forever, and then they came up with this term enemy combatant, to try and make it look like these were people picked up on a battlefield, uh, such as you would do in in a war. And then you see, if you pick up someone on a battlefield, and they're carrying a gun, or you, know, you are allowed to hold them till the end of that particular war as a prisoner of war, generally. So they're trying to sort of, like, slip into that sort of area. But, of course, it's not that. We're not picking up people on a battlefield. We're picking up civilians who the president believes or the administration believes are alleged terrorists. Uh, they have no... Sense of whether these guys ever picked up a gun or not, because they weren't seen with that, and they try and meld onto it this idea that it's a war, war on terror, quote, and therefore you can hold people till the end of the quote war on terror. Which, of course, you know if you're realistic and understand what's happened in this world in the last two thousand years, uh, that war will never be over.
0: Exactly, and with regard to these uh, guys at Guantanamo, I read that over a hundred of them. Are from uh, Yemen. Now, what is all that about? Has Yemen declared war on the U.S.?
1: Well, it's weird. You know, there were a, there were a similar number at one time from Saudi Arabia, roughly that from Afghanistan, maybe less or more, but within that range, uh, those being I think the three major countries where people were from. And what's really happened here is Yemen has refused to take back uh, any of its uh, any of its citizens or nationals. And there's been a lot of work done by my office and others There's been a meeting in Yemen with uh, you know with everybody from the yemenese uh, Yemeni prime minister the human rights groups and we have yet um to be able to convince the Yemen government to take people back now it shouldn't be our responsibility as lawyers to convince the Yemen government that should be uh up to the United States, but the United States uh has so far not made any great efforts. Uh, to send people back, even if they're no longer, or even if they were, were innocent or not enemy combatants, uh, and it, it's really up to the United States to pressure Yemen to take people. And if it's not going to, people ought to be uh, found other countries they can go to, or you know, or, or if they're you know found to to be innocent to be given asylum in the United States but of course I think that's going to be a very very remote but the reason there's such a skewing toward Yemen is of the not 800 or so almost 900 people have gone through Guantanamo 600 or so have gotten out but Yemen has not taken anybody back so you're as you reduce the whole number uh, the the Yemen Yemeni who have not been taken back uh, begin to skew the statistic at the percentage of people at Guantanamo
0: And what about captives at uh, Bagram Air Force Base in in Afghanistan or at Abu Ghraib Prison in Iraq or on the 17 U.S. naval vessels at sea with secret prisons in their holds? Will any of them benefit from this decision? Do any of them have legal representation of any kind?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked that, Bonnie, because if you look at this broadly, Guantanamo is like the tip of the iceberg, uh, it was near here. We knew people who were sent there right away. Uh, we got to represent their families. Uh, it's under complete jurisdiction and control of the United States. And ultimately, as you and I have been discussing, we won in the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court decision sort of set up what you would call a pragmatic test or a practical test as to what other situations habeas corpus or the right to go to court might apply in. And so the issues you raise for me, Bagram, secret detention sites, ships, all of that, are are very serious issues because, as I said, we have a worldwide detention program run by the United States. We've gotten at a tip of it, and that's Guantanamo. And how are we going to get at the other parts of it, and will the habeas corpus writ apply in those places? There have been some cases filed on behalf of a few people at Bagram, um, but those cases have not been heard. And so one of the first they will be heard, and the question will be, does habeas apply there? And what Justice Kennedy said in the opinion was, is it practical to apply it there? What kind of control does the U.S. have? Those are the sort of two issues. And I, I would argue they should have it. I would argue any person detained by the United States anywhere in the world should have a right to test their detention in, in a U.S. court. And the problem is, of course, that you know, as you get farther from the United States and as you get possibly arguably less control over a particular area or as you get closer to a so-called battlefield it's going to be a little harder to implement that decision but bagram will be probably the next test uh, secret sites we don't you know we don't represent anybody who's in a secret site we we knew in the past where secret sites were you know from Poland to Thailand uh, to uh, somewhere in the uh, in, in Africa uh, well we never had any of our clients at the moment at those secret sites so we could file. So we don't know that ships, on the other hand, represent a very interesting issue because ships are under complete jurisdiction and control of the United States. They're considered like a floating piece of the United States. A U.S. ship is the equivalent of a really a sovereignty of the of the U.S. It has an American flag on it. You know, it's it's essentially a, a floating piece of our country, and therefore, to the extent that the U.S. has use these ships as offshore floating prisons, which is what the evidence looks like they have, although we don't know who those people are on those ships at this moment, uh, and so we can't represent anybody, it would seem to me that the next logical step from the case we just won in the Supreme Court is that people on ships, to the extent we ever get a name of somebody, would be able to file writs of habeas corpus.
0: Right, and because, well now, didn't the fact that uh, the base at Guantanamo Bay because that is under, uh, it's like sovereign territory of the United States. The United States government had complete control over that. That figured in the habeas and the former uh, uh, habeas cases before the Supreme Court, didn't it?
1: Yes, it's a very important fact, actually. You know, while um, Cuba technically owns all of the island of Cuba, I mean has sovereignty over all of the island of Cuba, Uh, They were forced to sign a lease with the United States in 1906 as a condition of the United States giving Cuba its, quote, independence. Uh, And that lease gives the United States complete jurisdiction and control over a 45-square-mile area, which is the Guantanamo uh, naval base that the U.S. has possession of. So it is the equivalent of sovereignty, uh, for all practical purposes. And that's what the Supreme Court said. The argument the Supreme Court on this issue over the last few cases has gone between the government insisting that you only get constitutional rights or the right of habeas at a place over which the U.S. is sovereign, and the only place the U.S. is sovereign is the 50 states and maybe a couple of other territories, like Guam or something. Um, on the other hand, uh, they claim that while the U.S. had complete jurisdiction and control over Guantanamo, sovereignty was in the hands of the of the Cubans. But as the Supreme Court said, as Justice Kennedy said, meaningless, because every single right is exercised uh, by the United States in Guantanamo. Cuba cannot say anything. We can't go into a Cuban court. Uh, there's no rights of the Cubans at all at Guantanamo. And what's really interesting uh, is that if you take a place like Guantanamo compared to a place like oh, I don't know, San Francisco or something, or Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, you have the federal government, you have the state of California, you have the city of Los Angeles, all having something to say about what happens in Los Angeles. In Guantanamo, you only have the federal government. So it's even more sovereign in a way, or even more under the control of the federal government than any other place uh, that the United States uh, his sovereignty over, so that that is a very significant factor, and you can see how that might make a difference in a place like Bagram, where there may be some kind of a um, I haven't seen it, but some kind of agreement uh, with the uh, with the government uh, with the government of Afghanistan that says um, that Afghanistan has certain kind of rights at Bagram, whereas uh, whereas there's no such agreement with Cuba like that with regard to Guantanamo.
0: Well, also as well, uh, doesn't this latest uh, habeas decision uh, by the Supreme Court go even further and say that habeas corpus is a right, the right to challenge your detention in court, that that is applicable anywhere in the world? Doesn't this latest decision go that far?
1: Well, I would, as the lawyers for the Guantanamo detainees, we would argue that the right of habeas corpus follows uh... united states detention anywhere in the world and the court but the court did apply a test for it so for example it it would seem that if you're picked up on a battlefield uh... let's say the u.s. fights a war and people picked up on a battlefield immediately um... would they have a right to file habeas corpus immediately probably not because the supreme court's going to insist that the u.s. have at least nominal more than nominal real control over the area in which they're holding the people so that or, or at least control over the the release of the person. So that it wouldn't follow, in no, it might not follow in that exact situation, but generally we would read this decision as saying the writ of habeas corpus would apply anywhere the U.S. detains someone uh, where they have control over the area.
0: I'm speaking with attorney and president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, Michael Ratner. Today's show, The Writ of Habeas Corpus, The Right to Challenge Detention, I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So now, we've won these historic rights. Habeas corpus is law. But the executive and legislative branches of the government, that is the President and Congress, have shown a propensity to not follow the law. We've kind of touched on this previously. So in your opinion, how protected by the law are we, really?
1: Well, it's a problem. I mean, you have to. You're only protected by the law to the extent you keep fighting. Because, you know, we saw that what the president and Congress did, as you mentioned, in the Military Commission Act and the Detainee Treatment Act, twice overriding the Supreme Court. And even now, I think it won't happen. But even now, you're seeing a bunch of Republicans in Congress saying, "We hate this decision. It's the worst decision. We want to get rid of it. We want to set up. If we're going to do this, we can set up an adequate substitute for habeas. We can do it in military courts." I don't think that's going to get far, uh, certainly not before the election, but it's always a worry even after the election, uh, because it's been painted as if somehow uh, Guantanamo should have no court look at it at all. So you always have to be vigilant. That's one place. Is Congress is, is always there uh, to try and undercut you, at least it seems that way in this current uh, period. And the other place, of course, is the, is the executive in court, as we are now in the District of Columbia, we will again see, and I guarantee it, we will see an incredible effort to delay any hearings in any of these cases in the District of Columbia. And they will do it in 30,000 different ways from, uh, you know, secret evidence, security clearances, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of issues. And they're certainly going to try and drag it out till the next president, and we'll see what happens then. But it's going to be It's going to be delay, delay, delay. That's the name of the game for the executive right now, President Bush.
0: Well, that's exactly what I was about to ask you, was how soon you thought all of these hundreds of habeas corpus cases were going to hit the courts. And what you're saying is uh, not too soon, right?
1: Well, we're in the court right now in the sense that we've been in the court for three or four years or more, or since more, since February uh, 2002 when we filed the first case we've been in the court the court has either held the petitions for habeas in abeyance or dismissed them or they're in various stages of you know just not being heard so now they've all they're all being revived and last week after the decision and this week and there's going to be, a, you know, a series of cases that are now continuing in the court. But the question really is not that they're continuing. The question is when will the actual, when will the government have to come forward and show its evidence? When will we be able to cross-examine? When will we, we be able to present our own evidence? And that could be a very, very long time. I mean, why I say very long time? It could be certainly six months or more. It could be a year. And it could be who knows what, depending on Congress. But right now, uh, it's not going to be tomorrow, I'll put it that way.
0: Exactly. And the times that we are living in now are getting scarier by the minute. What about these strange loves in the government uh, talking about striking Iran and causing total mayhem, both domestically and abroad? Could such a horrific eventuality lead to martial law, the cancellation of all civil liberties?
1: Well, you know, we came, we're not so far away. I mean, we really are not so far away. When you see an executive that believes that it can jail people anywhere in the world without any rights and without lawyers, and they include American citizens in the category of enemy combatants, you realize that we're not so far away. And even Congress gave a definition of enemy combatant uh, that could conceivably, that does apply to U.S. citizens. Uh, The question is habeas corpus. Uh, You know, it does right now apply to U.S. citizens. uh, So you would still be able to challenge your detention, but it could take years, as I've said, even with these cases. Massive preventive detention. So, if they're, you know, as things get more and more serious, these are things to certainly keep in mind. You know, obviously, if if we attack Iran and there's a huge uh, upsurge of, you know, anger at the attack, both here and in the world you know, you, you're going to get more and more repression. We've seen it across the board, obviously, not just at Guantanamo. We've seen Muslim communities decimated. You know, we've seen special registration. We've seen roundups. Uh, we've seen limits on our First Amendment rights already, you know, from demonstrations to uh, surveillance. You know, the latest wiretap uh, statute that's going to apply, that it allows the government to continue and really what was for years an unlawful, warrantless wiretap program by President Bush. Um, it's all it's all part of it. And so we, even without an attack on Iran, without some excuse for more repression in this country, uh, what we're talking about is a long way to go to get back even to September 10th, 2001, much less to, uh, uh, to a, real, uh, a real democracy and real civil rights.
0: Well, that's right. Now, how do you read the political atmosphere now? This latest Supreme Court decision was really terrific in terms of upholding basic uh, fundamental rights. And yet, as you've enumerated, there is lots of other laws being passed in Congress that are going in the other direction. Do you think this latest Supreme Court decision... Uh, signals a shift in the political wind in the United States that maybe we're going to start loosening up and stop. I mean, how do you read this? You know, it
1: doesn't seem to be a, a big loosening, I'll tell you that. I mean, we still are getting very little progress on torture, uh, on the stopping of torture. You know, McCain actually vetoed, not vetoed, but didn't um, vote for the bill that would have banned waterboarding by the CIA. Uh, Obama's been better on that issue, um, but. You know, on a number of other issues, it seems that the Democrats are still shaking their boots when they're accused of being weak on on terrorism or weak on national security, and they allow things to happen that that shouldn't happen. Um, I, I think this was an important decision, but it is, of course, the most fundamental right, which is habeas corpus. As I said, I still have great fears of preventive detention. And we still have, you know, secret detention facilities that no one in Congress has touched. We have torture that has barely been nicked, and and there's actually, we've lost the public debate in many ways on the issue of torture, that more and more people in this country uh, would allow torture in the uh, so-called extreme, whatever the extreme cases are that don't really exist, but the extreme cases, the ticking time bomb and others, which never really happen. but what would go for it or go for it if, if you have a terrorist, they claim you could do it. So we haven't done well on that. On our everything from our secrecy issues have just gotten worse and worse, uh, the First Amendment issues worse and worse on on dissent. Uh, we're not in a good place right now, and and I and I don't see either of the political parties standing up uh, for the for fundamental rights right now. Other than on this issue, uh, the Democratic Party and, and Barack Obama seem to embrace the habeas corpus position, which was very good, uh, but. But, but that's as far as i could say we've gone
0: uh, could you comment on the violent radicalization and homegrown terrorism prevention act of 2006 that uh representative jane jane harmon from california uh she brought i guess that stalled somewhere in a, a senate committee is that right
1: correct i mean but on that that act passed the house 404 to 2 or something whatever it was some big number Apparently, they got through either... Some people, I've talked to some liberal congressmen, who so said they didn't know much about it. They voted on it, et cetera. But what that act does, um, it doesn't yet criminalize uh, criminalize radical thinking, um, but it's going in that direction. It really it sets up a sort of study group and uh, university and hearings around the country to look at radical thoughts, essentially. And it particularly wants to look at... at Muslim radical thoughts, but looks at all others. And what happens with these things is they become sort of witch hunts around the country where they subpoena people and they look at websites and they say, that's radical thoughts. And then they pass laws about that. But the first thing is stigmatizing radical or different thoughts. And then the second one is passing laws about it. And the House did pass that bill. And it's extremely dangerous because what the bill openly admits is it wants to be able to, quote, stop terrorism, um, stop terrorism before anyone even acts, in other words, based on people's thinking. That's pretty serious. That hasn't happened in America for a very, very long time. And it, it is stalled in the Senate now, um, and I hope it stays stalled, uh, but I, I have no, you know, the way it passed so, in a, such a lopsided way in the House is, is, is extremely, uh, makes me extremely nervous.
0: Well, yes, and that's a, a, that brings us right back to Congress again, that... Congress will just pass this stuff, and like you said, people are even claiming they don't read it. That reminds me of the Patriot Act.
1: Yeah, they didn't read the Patriot Act. Most of them, they didn't have time. They said, or they didn't care, whatever. They didn't read it. And you know, Congress has not been a great protection. It certainly, uh, on these issues, these post nine eleven terrorism issues, it's been extremely extremely weak in terms of protection of civil liberties, and extremely able to be intimidated. And I include, obviously, many Republicans, most Republicans and many Democrats in that. I mean, I think the biggest cave-in to me is going to be on this warrantless wiretapping. You know, President Bush violated the law for five years engaging in warrantless wiretapping of American citizens, including our email. Congress is now about to give immunity to the telephone companies that helped him out with it. As well as a, allow much of that program to continue, and and this was a compromise made by the House by both Pelosi and Steny Hoyer, the leaders of the House. Uh, they got they got the votes. It's going over to the Senate. Uh, there's some senators, uh, some senators, some Democrats standing up against it, uh, but it, it may well pass. Uh, and even Barack Obama said he had, he didn't say he changed his position, but he did he initially said he would filibuster any legislation that gave immunity to the telecoms, and this one does. And he now said he's going to vote for it. So we're really uh, looking at, uh, without a stronger effort by people in this country to alert themselves and really push their representatives as well as their executive, um, we're not looking at a rosy picture going forward, despite my great feelings of hope from this uh, habeas corpus decision uh, that even five moderates on the court could go with us.
0: Well, that was an incredible win at the Supreme Court on habeas. Now, with this latest finding or this latest decision on uh, the Supreme Court uh, avowing that the writ of habeas corpus, that that right is guaranteed to us in our Constitution, that it's a constitutional right, there's no real way that the court could reverse that decision, is there?
1: I don't think so. I think even— you know, they can't reverse it. But, you know, we, once you have a decision, it's really a precedent that it's very difficult for a court to override and change their mind. Let's say the, let's say McCain was elected. Uh, a couple of the five people in the five leave the court, and therefore you have a, a majority of the four that you have, you know, Scalia, Scalia, Thomas, Alito, and Roberts, and you add a couple more of those kind of people to it. And then you get six judges who don't want to give habeas to Guantanamo. Technically, they could override it. Um, they could say, we disagree, We, but, but there's something called precedent, and it would be unlikely they would do that. They might find a way to get rid of any possible right of habeas at Bagram. There's enough looseness in the decision to do that. But I think for the Guantanamo detainees, that would really be very unlikely.
0: Michael Ratner, is there anything else you'd like to add with regard to this important win at the Supreme Court on our habeas corpus rights?
1: Well, I think the only thing I would say is, despite... Know, a long uh, a long struggle here uh, that it does show that you can't you can't be Pollyannish or falsely optimistic uh, but with really a long struggle with the right kind of fight with using all the means at our disposal, not just courts but public relations education uh, that that you can win some struggle still in this country, and so that I, i'm it, it makes me, optimistic wouldn't be the right word, but it makes me think that if you really are fighting for something, you still have a, a possibility in this country, but we have a very, very long way to go.
0: Michael Ratner, congratulations, and thank you for an incredibly important decision at the Supreme Court with regard to our habeas corpus rights. Thank you, Michael. Bonnie,
1: thank you very much for having me. There's something happening, here. yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: I've been speaking with attorney Michael Ratner. Today's show, The Writ of Habeas Corpus, The Right to Challenge Detention. Michael Ratner is president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, a nonprofit human rights litigation organization in New York City. He is author of numerous books and articles, including the books Against War with Iraq and Guantanamo, What the World Should Know and a textbook on international human rights. Michael Ratner has been adjunct professor of international human rights litigation at the Columbia Law School, lecturer at Yale Law School, and former president of the National Lawyers Guild. Visit the Center for Constitutional Rights website at www.ccr-ny.org. That's ccr-ny.org. Today's program was produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Todd Fletcher. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, www.gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction and will be back up soon. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G, and our new world order is about to begin, you know what I'm saying? Now, the question is are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you see, then divine, you dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call to all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what's inside yourself. Police. You dig me?